Paul will go from one jail sentence to another and give his testimony in several places. Chapter 22 will eventually lead Paul to Rome, where he'll stand before Caesar. He will be released. He will be captured again, though not recorded in the scripture, history tells us, captured again and then killed at the hand of Caesar Nero. Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem for a long time. If you followed through the book of Acts with us, you know that that was his heart's desire, to speak to his own people and share his personal testimony with them. Tonight he gets his chance, or in this chapter he gets his chance. Though, as he gets his chance, he gets caught, almost beaten, thrown into prison, taken to Caesarea, spends two years there, goes to Rome, is locked in jail for most of the rest of his life. And that would cause us in the outward to say, what a tragedy. Here's a man having a fruitful ministry. God seems to be opening doors. And then all of a sudden the door is slammed and he's in prison. He must not be in God's will. On the contrary. Yes, he is in prison. But because he was in prison, we have the prison epistles like Philippians. And much of the New Testament was written by Paul in a jail. Plus, we have his personal testimony and how he defended the faith. He wrote to the Philippians these words. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, if you know anything about Paul the Apostle, he had one dream And that was to advance the gospel. He didn't care how he did it, where he did it, just that he did it. He wanted to make sure that as many people heard the gospel from his lips in his lifetime as possible. And he said, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am in chains for Jesus Christ. You say, what a misfortune for Paul to be in prison? Well, because Paul was in prison... He said he got to preach to the palace guard, the elite praetorium Roman guard. Imagine your duty as a Roman guard. You come into the office one day and they say, "Uh, Guard, you four guards, your job is to be chained to this guy named Paul the Apostle. And I want you on six-hour shifts around the clock. Uh, first you, George, you'll be chained to him for the first shift. And then Bernie, you're the second shift. And Pete, you're the third shift. And you guys just switch off. Imagine being chained to Paul for six hours. And you couldn't escape. You couldn't just, you couldn't just say, hey, I'm getting out of here. You, your job was to guard him. And he had the freedom as a Roman citizen to say anything he wanted to say. And because of that, he was able to share with these guys. And while they were chained to him, He probably said something like, you know, I'm chained here, but I'm really chained to Jesus Christ, and you're in bondage, and you can be chained to Christ. Let's pray. All right? (laughs) And a revival swept through the Roman prison as Paul was chained to these praetorian guards. You know, that, that whole idea can change your outlook because you may think thoughts like, well, I'd like to be a missionary or I'd like to get into the ministry, or I'd like to even get involved in this ministry school coming up, but I can't. I'm imprisoned by my job. I'm chained by my schooling that I promised for the next couple of years. I wish I could do something different, but I can't. Listen, if you can see whatever you're chained to 
as being in chains for Christ, it will transform that area into a pulpit for you. You might be a housewife thinking, I'm chained to my children. I'd like to get out of the house. I'd like to be involved in more work for the Lord. I've got kids to raise. Well, listen, think of Joanna Wesley. She raised 19 kids. She must have been a tired lady. I have one. I know it one's like 19 kids. She must have felt chained in prison. She couldn't do whatever she wanted to do. But two of those children, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, grew up to shake England for the gospel because she invested her life in those two, actually all of her 19 kids, but two of them became bright lights. You might say, I'm in prison to... Physical limitations. Well, think about Charlotte Elliott, who was an invalid for years, chained to a bed of pain. And in that bed, she wrote songs like, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that song is sung at every crusade that Billy Graham has had across the world. I have an acquaintance who was formerly a pastor, and he was accused falsely for a crime which he did not commit. And he has been serving about the last eight years in prison. And I followed him. I've monitored just some of the things he's going through and how mistreated he felt at first, angry he felt at first. But then he finally said, hey, God's doing a great work. I'm able to finish my education here, witness to a lot of guys. I've led a lot of the people in my area to Christ, and we have Bible studies every week, and God's at work, and I rejoice in what he's doing. Because he saw his arena as a platform to share the gospel and give his testimony. Well, in chapter 22, actually the whole chapter, is Paul's testimony to the Jews in Jerusalem. Chapter 23 is Paul's testimony to the Jewish Sanhedrin. And then he'll go to Caesarea for the next few years. We'll hear share with kings and princes and so forth. But in verse 1 we read, Men, brethren, fathers, hear my defense before you now. We should back up to verse 37. As Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, remember, Paul was caught in the temple. And some of the Jews said, hey, Paul brought a Gentile in here, let's kill him. And so a riot happened in this huge temple complex in Jerusalem. The Roman guards moved in from this area called the Antonia Fortress, saved Paul, and they brought him into the barracks. Now Paul says, hey, can I speak to you? And the man said, can you speak Greek? Aren't you that Egyptian who some time ago raised an insurrection and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no small city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. And so when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying... Now, here's the scene. There are, no doubt, thousands, at least several hundreds of people out below Paul. He's on a raised platform on a wall, overlooking and probably having to shout in a loud voice so all of his audience who hated him could hear. Now, keep in mind, Paul couldn't wait to share. He'd been waiting for this for a long time. He tried to go to Jerusalem one time after he was saved, Acts chapter 9. And remember what happened? He tried to join himself to the disciples, and the disciples didn't believe that he was really a Christian because he used to kill Christians.
And so he keeps witnessing to the Grecian Jews and they tried to kill him. And the church found out about it and shipped him off to Tarsus again and the church finally had rest. So he didn't get his chance. Through his last missionary journey, he kept saying, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to go to Jerusalem. And they kept warning him, Paul, don't go. Man, you'll be in prison. You'll be in chain. I don't care. I'm going. I've got to get there for the feast. He was stubborn. He wanted to share his testimony. He knew it could have an effect, and it did. But we'll see what kind. Men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Now that word defense in chapter 1 is an important word you need to learn. It's the word apologia. We get the word apology from, but it actually means a defense for the faith or testimony. A defense for the faith. Apologetics comes from this word. It's the word that Peter used when he wrote and said, In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord and be prepared to give an answer, an apologia, a defense to everyone who asks of you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. As a Christian, you are called to make an apologia, a defense, a testimony for the faith, to defend the faith, not to defend yourself, let God defend you, But you make a stand for the faith. Several years ago, I got an unusual invitation that I answered. I took him up on it. And it was to go to the Albuquerque Academy here and to speak on Christianity. They had a whole series of people in this religion class. They had a Buddhist in there and they had a rabbi in there and they had uh, guys from different religions explain their religion. So they figured, well, let's have a preacher in there talk about Christianity. And so they were kind of expecting this um, milk-toasty Christian kind of a flabby witness that is often given. I was hoping it would be a little different than that. And we started out the session by saying, you should not believe in Christianity just because someone tells you to. That got their attention. Because they thought I was going to tell them all the little merits of being a Christian. But that perked them up. And I said that there ought to be Evidence and a defense for the faith. Because a Christian isn't called to put his brain on the shelf when he becomes a Christian, not to throw his intellect away, but that there should be a reason to believe. The Bible says we're to give a reason. And it also says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our mind as well as our heart. And Christians ought to be thinking Christians. So I think we had to discuss today, and I think we had to ask questions and see if there's any reasons. And they had some interesting, provocative, and difficult questions. But it was a wonderful forum. It lasted about an hour, an hour and a half. And after that, we had lots of people who came around who were very interested in Christianity for the first time. Because many who were believers in that class, like many of us, knew what they believed in. But they didn't know why they believed in it. I grew up religiously. I knew what I believed in. If you ask me why, I couldn't tell you. And I remember the first time I was assaulted when I went to college. I was assaulted intellectually. You mean you believe that? What an idiot. You believe in God, Creator, Jesus? That's a myth. Come off of it. 
And I was brought to a point where I thought either Christianity is true or it's not true. If it's true, I want to know why it's true. If I find out it's not true, I'll be the first to throw it out the window. Now, I believe in faith, that you need to trust God and believe by faith. But faith has a basis, a reason for the hope that lies in you. And I approached it on that level and I did my homework. And then when I had all those unbelieving doctors and physicists and teachers around me trying to dissuade me from the faith, it was a wonderful time and we saw many of them come to Christ. The power of testimony, of making a defense for the faith. So Paul says, hear now my apologia or my defense before you. Now, there are answers, and we have done a series on it actually, that you can give to people when they ask you questions, why you believe what you believe. You say, well, what difference does that make, Skip? Is it going to help me any? No, but it's going to help them. If they are really interested and they're sincere seekers with sincere, honest doubts, you might just provoke something in their heart that might cause them to search a little harder. And in searching, God will find them and rescue them. However, a warning about this. Don't expect everyone to fall flabbergasted at your knowledge of apologetics. In fact, there are many people who say they have questions and problems when really they don't. They're just using that as a smokescreen to disbelieve. Josh McDowell tells of going to a New England university and a man saying, Josh, I'd like to believe in that, but I have intellectual problems. I just can't believe in Jesus. And Josh said, if I can prove to you the Bible is true and Jesus is who he said he was. I didn't say I could. If I can, will you trust him? If I can prove it to you empirically. He said, no, I won't. Then Josh said, you just lied to me. You said you can't believe. The issue is you won't believe. It's not with your ability. It's with your will. You've decided not to believe and this is the smokescreen. It was Voltaire, the infidel, who said... If a miracle occurred in the marketplace of Paris and in the presence of 2,000 men, I would rather disbelieve my own eyes than the 2,000. What a statement! That means there are certain amounts of evidence and apologia and testimony that you can give. It won't budge certain people, no matter how well it's presented, because their heart is hardened. But one of the strongest defenses is a personal testimony. It's so wonderful for me to hear Randy share his testimony and Chris share his testimony tonight, and I've heard some of yours, to hear what God has done in your lives. Different backgrounds, some religious, some irreligious, some on drugs, some nice guys who thought they were wonderful until God persuaded them they were sinners and they repented of it. But there's one issue, and that is God changes lives. And a testimony, a personal testimony, is the most irrefutable because it's yours. Well, how do you know you were saved? Easy. I was there when it happened. You can't dispute that. You weren't. I was. I saw the changes in my life. My family, my friends have witnessed what God has done in my life. And that's the strongest evidence that you can share. Now, Paul has his testimony. He was once a Christian hater. Now he is a Christian. He once persecuted them. Now he believes in Jesus with all of his heart. A testimony should always point to what God has done. I noticed something about the two giving their testimonies this evening. They shared about their past. They did it rather quickly to get to the point. God changed my life. And now this is what God is doing with my life. And the glory goes to Him. 
I know people who in their testimony want to paint the worst kind of a picture, even make it a little evangelistic, stretch the truth just a little bit, paint a worse picture of who they were than they really were, to impress you, to give glory to the flesh. And it turns into, instead of a testimony, a bragamony. Swapping flesh stories. When the glory should go to God. Hey, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And that's the testimony of a changed life. I'd like to read to you something I found in a book written by Cyprian. He was a third century martyr. The value of a testimony of a changed life. He's writing to one of his friends, a Roman named Donatus, and he says, This is a cheerful world as I see it from my garden under the shadow of my vines. But if I were to ascend some high mountain and look over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the highways, pirates on the sea, armies fighting, cities burning, In the amphitheaters, men murdered to please applauding crowds, selfishness and cruelty and misery and despair under all roofs. It's a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered that in the midst of it is a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. In the midst of the ruckus, there is peace, and I have found that peace. And this man saw in the lives of people living their testimonies what a real Christian was. And that testimony was enough irrefutable evidence to change Cyprian's own heart. Now, in chapter 22, Paul's own life has been changed radically. And let's let's read this. He says in verse 3, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you are today. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering unto the prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness And all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren, I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So far, his testimony is straightforward. I like that about Paul. Paul was a brilliant intellect. He was trained at one of the best universities of his day. He was from Tarsus. And the University of Tarsus, folks, was better and bigger than the one in Alexandria, Athens, and Corinth put together. They passed their prime. He was probably educated in Tarsus at that university. Beyond that, as a Jew, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most noted teachers in all of Judaism. In fact, Gamaliel was called the glory of the law. He had quite a significant background, and he could have impressed them with his biblical knowledge, but he did not want to floor them with rhetoric and impress them with knowledge and all. He just shot 
from the hip, straightforward. This is who I was, I can relate with you, and this is what God did in my life. He's basically saying, I personally experienced Jesus Christ. And as we said, it's better than any kind of theological treatise, especially if people know who you are, to let them see the change in your life and to recount those simple, humble beginnings with Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice something about his testimony. He builds a bridge, and this is important when you share with people. He builds a bridge from who he is to who they are. He basically says, I'm one of you, I'm a Jew, you've seen me, the high priest, the elders know about me. Not only do I love the law, not only do I speak the Hebrew language like you speak, but I was so zealous that I persecuted Christians in the meantime. I was so zealous for the law. I'm a lover of the law. He used that as a platform to get to the important issue, Jesus Christ. You see, up to this point, they were nodding. Oh, yeah, you're a Jew, good. You speak Hebrew, great. You sat under the feet of Gamaliel. Wow. Impressive. You're a lover of the law. Amen. Well, I'm glad you agree with me. Let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. And he shared that as a platform. So now they have this man, this noted Jew, this man of great renown, standing in front of them, sharing about their Messiah that they don't know yet. It's quite some evidence. He was becoming all things to all men. Now, when it comes to sharing our testimony or sharing our faith, many people are reluctant to do that. And probably most of you are reluctant or you have been at some point. I found that there's several reasons why people can be reluctant to share. Number one, they don't know how. They've seen canned approaches and they don't like them. And so they figure no approach is better than a canned approach. Just I won't say anything. I don't know how. Nobody's taught me how to share my testimony, how to share with people. That's why in part of our ministry school, in the morning classes, we're bringing a guy in to share about evangelizing and how to share your testimony. What key elements will make for an effective testimony in sharing the gospel with people. Another reason people don't do it. They're scared. It's frightening to stand in front of people on the street, in a business, among your friends and your relatives, and to tell them these things. It's scary. I remember the first time I shared. I was in a ministry that put us all in a um, Volkswagen bus, piled us in. I think they were trying to win the Guinness Book of World Records of how many Christians could be stuffed in a Volkswagen. And then they drove us to a mall and they said, go share Go share what? I've only been a Christian two weeks. What am I going to share? And he said, don't worry, you know enough. And I'll tell you what, I was scared. I stood out there. I felt like an alien that just landed from outer space. As I looked at the people's visual responses, their body language. I'm telling them about Jesus and they thought, what are you doing out here telling us about? That belongs in a church. It was scary. A third reason that probably follows on the heels of that is we're afraid of rejection. We don't like people under any circumstances to not like us. And for some reason, being accepted has become to some people their God. And when somebody would reject us or turn us off, oh, I can't handle that. And because of rejection, we don't want to share. And let's face it, nobody likes a pushy salesman. I don't. You ought to see me when I go into a store. I can spot the salesman. 
And I kind of, as I see him come and go the other way, if I see another one, it's kind of like, head him off. Because I don't, I just like to make up my own mind. And because many people are like that in regards to the gospel, and they feel like, look, buddy, don't share publicly. This is my business, not your business. We don't like that rejection. We clam up. Then there are those, unfortunately, who don't share and are reluctant for another reason. That is, they simply don't care. You say, are there Christians who don't care? It seems that way. It seems that many have resigned to, that's their business, not my business. That's their problem. That's their choice. I don't care. I just want to make sure I get to heaven and I get through life with Christ. And then there's a fifth reason. And some of you fall into that category. You've had a bad experience in the past. Either you've tried it or you've heard somebody try it and it was just, it just didn't click. It didn't happen. And I've seen that myself. I tell you, if there is a reason for me not to share because of bad experiences, I have them all. I remember going out to the Huntington Beach Pier to share my faith one night with a group of friends. And as I was going out, I heard this guy shouting at the top of his lungs, waving a Bible, saying, all condemnation, repent, you're all going to hell, God is going to destroy you. And he was yelling at people, and people were laughing at him and running from him, and he just left a bad, bad testimony. I didn't want to follow on his heels. Then there was a guy, bless his heart, in my early Christian walk named Charlie. Charlie was very zealous, but I think he had a zeal not according to knowledge. He had a love for people, but he had an interesting method. I don't remember that people really came to Christ through some of the flamboyant methods of his. Though I think one-on-one he'd have been great. But Charlie came up to me and he'd walk right up to me, get right in my face. I mean, like, right there. And he'd walk up and go, praise the Lord. I go, praise the Lord, Charlie, how you doing? Praise the Lord. Let's go witnessing. And he took me into Sambo's restaurant, opened the door, stood up on a chair and said, can I have your attention? And he just started right there. I just, oh, i got to crawl under a table. I have to go to the restroom, something. Let me get out of here. Then there was a friend of mine in Santa Ana who worked at a local radio station. We kind of nicknamed him the Fanatic. And the Fanatic was indeed a fanatic. He really loved the Lord again, but interesting ways of telling people about it. Not only doing some of the same that my other friends had done, but he would take and in his car have a stick or a clothes hanger with a clothes pin at the end. And uh, he'd come up to a stoplight and he'd put on the brakes, he'd roll down his window, he'd open up the clothes pin, stick a tract on it, honk his horn. And the cars next to him would look at him and he'd go... Telling them to roll down the window. They rolled it down. He would go. That was the mild stuff. I just thought, you know, I don't think God's called me to be an evangelist. Don't think so. I don't like this job description. I was reluctant. But every one of us has a personal testimony. Every one of us has a platform like Paul. We can say, 
I was a businessman. I was caught up in materialism and money, and I was on my way, so to speak, to Damascus from Jerusalem, and God apprehended me. Or I was a drug addict. I was in my room, like Randy was sharing, with needle marks all over me after a cocaine fix, and God spoke to me. You're mine. He was on his way to Damascus. But Jesus apprehended him. All of you have that testimony. And that makes a big difference. And it made a difference as people were listening to Paul the Apostle share these things. In verse 9, those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. Again, the simplicity so far, the simplicity. You think of all the questions that would be going and popping in people's brains. You mean God spoke to you, Paul? Can you elaborate on that? Was it an audible voice? Was it in your heart? Uh, Did he knock on the door? And Paul didn't seek to overcome those kinds of questions nor problems. He could have. He was a bright intellect. He stood in Athens and quoted the philosophers of Greece. But he didn't do it here. He just was very simple. I was there. God spoke to me. I said, what? Why? And God told me this. And he just goes on. Very simple. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, notice his description, a devout man according to the law. In other words, a Jewish guy like me and like you, audience, came to me, devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. You see what he's doing? He's relating to them on their level, becoming all things to all men. He came to me and he stood and he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Now, I've always, in my own mind, tried to picture how Ananias came to Saul. Remember, Saul was a persecutor, a murderer of Christians. If anybody believed in Jesus, it could be their head. He stood before Stephen when Stephen was stoned, and he took his cloak. And so, how do you think Ananias, when God said, Ananias, I want you to speak to somebody. Anywhere, Lord, tell me where. Saul. (coughs) Saul. He kills people like me, Lord. You sure you don't want him to go? No, I want you to go, Ananias. Okay. Um, Can I just yell at him, maybe a block away? No, I want you to go to him and face-to-face tell him this message. And you're to say, Brother Saul. How do you think he said it? I kind of tend to think it was like, Brother Saul? Are you a brother? Saul? Brother Saul? Oh, you are? Good. Well, I've got a message from God for you, but I'm sure he was a little bit trepidous, a little bit antsy as he came to him. Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that same, same hour I looked at him and he said, the God of our fathers, purely Jewish terminology here, has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. That, in verse 15, is the definition of a testimony. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Remember the man that was healed, who had been blind from birth? And the Pharisee said, tell us about this man. Tell us who he is. I don't know all these questions. All I know is I was once blind and now I see. That's my testimony. I don't know if whether he's who you say he is, if he's an insurrectionist or whatever. All I know is that I was blind, and now I can see out of these eyes. That's what a testimony is. You are sharing what God has done in your life. But back up to verse 14. 
Verse 14, I would say, is a beautiful summation of what the Christian life is to be. The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. That's the life of a Christian. Number one, to know the will of God. Number two, to walk in the presence of God. And number three, to hear his voice above every other voice in the world. That's how your life and my life ought to be lived. We ought to know the will of God. You say, how can I know the will of God? Well, Romans 12 says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. God, here I am. I want to do your will. I don't know exactly what it is, but my hands, my arms, my mouth, my feet will now all be used to give glory to you. Just shoot. Give me direction. And I'll do it. I'm presenting myself to know your will. You say, well, how do I hear the voice of God? Well, remember in the Old Testament it says God spoke in a still, small voice. Now, I know some of you would like the thunder clap and the loud get your attention kind of, but often it's just that still, small voice God speaks in your heart. Maybe right now God is speaking to your heart and you're sensing God's pull and tug in a direction. The problem with many of us and the reason why we don't hear the voice of God is there are other voices that are vying for time. Let's say you got a phone call one night and somebody on the other line's and is trying to talk to you. But at your house, you've got the TV going loudly, stereo blasting, and a whole bunch of people having a conversation. You won't be able to hear the guy very well unless you turn off the TV, turn down the stereo, and ask people to be quiet for a minute so I can hear this guy's voice. And so it is with the voice of God. You need to shut down many of the other stimuli going in your eye gate and ear gate during the day to hear God's voice. You need time alone. And you need to spend time in his presence where it says here, you will not only know the will of God, but you will see the just one. You'll walk daily in fellowship with him in his presence. And then finally, you'll hear his voice above the voices of the world. You'll tune in to God's word. You'll spend time, I should say it daily, if at all possible, to have a time alone with God, to hear his voice, so that you get counsel on the issues of life. As the Word of God becomes a part of you, and as it masters you, you say, I want to master the Bible. I'd rather have the Bible master you. Those truths will start guiding you and guarding you, and you'll obey the voice of God. Now verse 16. And now, while you are waiting, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Then it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I was in a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste or hurry up, get out of Jerusalem quickly. They're not going to receive your testimony concerning me. This happened way back in Acts chapter 9. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. In other words, Lord, sure they'll listen to me. They know that I was one of them. They know that I was their hitman. They'll believe me. And then he said to me, he's still recalling his testimony, as I was arguing with God, God said, get out of here, depart. For I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So he's given his testimony. God used me, he called me, he spoke to me. And he told me, leave Jerusalem, 
Preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, here's the reaction to this wonderful testimony. And they listened to him until this word. What word? Gentiles. Hagoyim. That was a dirty word to these guys. Not that Gentiles couldn't be spoken to, but how dare you, speaking of the God of our fathers and the Messiah who you claim to follow, in the same breath as with God reaching out to the Gentiles. No. No. And here's their reaction. They raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And as they cried out, they tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air. That's Paul, the reaction to Paul's testimony. But you know what? I'd rather have that reaction than just, Oh, how nice. Oh, I'm glad for you. It's wonderful that you found your place in life. Kind of that insipid non-response. It's better to have a cold or hot response. Even Jesus likes that. He said, I would that you were either hot or cold. You're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. If you're cold, then be cold. If you're hot, then be hot. And they had this violent reaction. At least Paul knew where they stood. And the commander ordered him to be brought back into the barracks that he should be examined under scourging. Now remember, scourging was a horrible punishment. They would take the prisoner, tie up his hands, tie up his feet, stretch him over a stone stump in the middle of a floor with his stomach on the stump, stretched over so his back was tight like a drum. His hands and his feet would be tied to brass rings in the floor so he'd be this tight unit. They would take a small handled piece of wood Attached to it were leather thongs with pieces of lead and glass inside the leather. And they would beat him 39 times. Most prisoners died because of it. When they would throw the first whip, it would stick into the back of the prisoner. The stone, the glass, the metal, the bone would stick. And then the Roman soldier would yank and it would rip parts of the flesh off. And as history records, this was so brutal that most prisoners died in the flogging process. Paul knew what a flog was. He was around when Jesus was flogged, no doubt. And he had a calling card at this point. He's not going to let himself be beat for no reason. Now, persecution is one thing, but he's not going to ask for it. And if he can get out of it, he uses common sense. As they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Hey, let me ask you a question. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman? In other words, a citizen and uncondemned? You see, the law stated, Roman law, much like our law, you cannot execute a sentence unless a man has been tried and a formal sentence has been given. And they're about to beat this guy to examine him, and that's illegal, but it's worse because he's a Roman citizen. Centurion heard that and he told the commander saying, hey, take care what you do. This man's a Roman. And the commander came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yep. And the commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained the citizenship. And Paul said, I was born a citizen. See, to become a Roman citizen, you were either born because your parents were citizens. They bought the citizenship or you had to pay for it yourself. It would be equivalent to about $100,000 today. I said, listen, I pay big bucks to become a Roman citizen. He said, I was born one. In other words, I have a higher status than you have. You can't touch me by Roman law. 
And immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Paul used his Roman calling card to get out of persecution. If you can get out of it, don't ask. You know, there are some people who are obnoxious as believers. And it's like they're asking to be persecuted so they can run tell all their friends, I was persecuted for righteousness sake. Now, I've had at my door cult members, members of non-Christian, though they claim to be Christian groups, sharing false, unbiblical doctrines. And then when I don't receive it, and I tell them that they're not walking after God, they'll say, well, you know, Jesus said we'd be persecuted for righteousness. Don't give me that. You're not being persecuted for righteousness sake. You're being persecuted because you're in error. Two different issues. And some relish in persecution. Paul would not. If it happened to him, fine. But hey, if I can use my Roman credit card here, I'm going to use it. I'm a Roman citizen. Don't beat me. And from the writings of the Romans, Cicero is an example. He said, to beat a Roman citizen is a major crime. To kill a Roman citizen is like killing your own father. The Romans knew that. They knew there's a heavy punishment for that. So they didn't do it. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds, commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear, and brought Paul down and set him before them. That is now the Jewish council. Keep something in mind. Let's say here's the temple area, the top of this podium. And right in the middle, about the size of this Bible, is the temple. Over here is where Paul preached to hundreds, if not thousands of people in a huge courtyard, 37 acres. Caused a riot. The guy didn't know what Paul said, so he had him bound, almost whipped. Now he drags him through the temple courts into a small room near this temple itself, and the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are gathering together. And Paul gives them, again, his testimony. And um, we'll read a couple verses and we'll close for the evening. Paul looked earnestly at the council. I like that. Gave my contact. He said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. I tell you what, I appreciate that verse. (laughs) If only for the reason to let us know that Paul was not a panty waist, was not a wimp and still had a flesh nature and got angry. He didn't wear halos and get it polished every morning. He was a man like you and I. And somebody smacked him. God's going to smack you, buddy. For you to sit and judge me according to the law, do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? He knew the law and it was illegal for it was commanded. And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. Now, wait a minute, Paul. You're a Pharisee. You've been raised in Jerusalem all these years. You didn't know the high priest. You'd know a high priest when you saw one. But you know, Paul, remember when he wrote letters? He said, You see what large letters I write to you with? Because they suspected Paul had an eye disease. He couldn't see very well at this time. He heard a voice he didn't know was the high priest. He couldn't delineate him. He couldn't discern that that was the man. 
And then Paul said, I didn't know, brethren, it was the high priest, for it is written, Exodus 22, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the son of a Pharisee. And concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, he knew this would cause what happened. Pharisees were fundamentalists. Sadducees were liberals. Pharisees believed in God, the scriptures, miracles, resurrection, spirits, angels. Pharisees denied all of it. And so when he said, I'm a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection, the Pharisees would have thought, well, he's a good man. Because they were divided against the Sadducees. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And for the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, no angel or spirit. The Pharisees confessed both. And there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes, who were of the Pharisees' party, arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. That's Paul's testimony. It was wise, wasn't it? They're getting down on Paul, and Paul says, I'm a Pharisee. That divided the group, and they started arguing with each other so much that the guy pulled Paul out. He was done. But in both cases, he had his heart's desire, though not the desired results. He wanted to share his testimony. Done. He wanted to share with the Jewish brethren. Done. He shared with the Sanhedrin. Done. The results were not pretty. He goes to prison for this. He'll go to Caesarea for two years, and then he'll go to Rome. But even then, Paul thought, Hey, now I get to share my testimony to Caesar Nero. This will be great. And the gospel goes to Rome. And many people came to know Christ through Paul's imprisonment all of these years as he shared his testimony to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the Sanhedrin, to Felix, Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, all the way to Caesar Nero. It's a fabulous story. I would like to close with something that Charles Spurgeon wrote on a testimony. He said... Many of you feel that you cannot write or preach. You think you can do nothing. There is one thing you can do for your master. You can live Christianity. I think that there are more people who look at the new life in Christ written out in you than they will in the old life that is written in the scriptures. An infidel will use arguments to disprove the Bible if you set it before him. But if you live honestly and uprightly in the world, he will say... Well, I thought the Bible was all hypocrisy, but I cannot think so now because there's Mr. So-and-so. See how he lives? I could believe in my infidelity if it were not for him. The Bible certainly has had an effect on his life, and therefore I must believe. The power of personal testimony. I once was blind, but now I see. Heavenly Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ that we would be emboldened to share our faith, to speak up for the name of Jesus to share our own Damascus Road experience. Father, we thank you that no matter what area of life we may be in as a housewife, as a businessman, or as somebody going out to the mission field, that we all have in that area a testimony to share and an impact can be made. Encourage us once again, Lord, to step out and speak the name of Jesus to give a defense for the faith, a reason for the hope that lies within each one of us. And I pray that we would do it with reverence 
and in meekness, as the scripture says. In humility, in reverence for you. Lord, I pray that if we don't have a personal testimony, that tonight we'd surrender our lives to the one who can give us one. Maybe our only testimony now is, I was lost and I still am. I was blind and I'm still in that state of not being able to see. I pray that as people would surrender to Jesus tonight, right now in this room, that they might have that testimony of the living Christ in a person's life.